Welcome to episode 32 of the Hidden History of Texas. I'm Hank Wilson, your host. Now, this one is slightly out of sequence because it's about the Goliad Massacre, and that actually took place before the runaway scrape and San Jacinto, the Battle of San Jacinto and Texas Independence. I sort of forgot about it, but it's very important, and I want to tell you all about it. This one is all about the Goliad Massacre. The Alamo has fallen. Santa Ana is moving through Texas. And that brings me to what has been known historically as the Goliad Massacre. While not as well known today, at least outside of Texas and among historians, at the time it was virtually impossible to measure how much support was generated for the cause against Mexico, both within Texas and in the United States. One thing is certain, without a doubt, The news of the massacre contributed to the Texan victory at the Battle of San Jacinto and helped in sustaining the independence of the Republic of Texas. While Texans and Americans were horrified and angered by the execution of those in James W. Fannin Jr.'s command, there was precedent for the massacre itself. Additionally, the order of the exterminations by Santa Ana was permitted by Mexican law. Now, since this is the the case, any discussion of the massacre must take the events and legislation that preceded it into consideration. We must remember that one of the major concerns of Santa Ana was that the colonists would receive help from the United States. His order to treat the colonists and those who resisted as pirates was first tested after November 15, 1835, when General Jose Antonio Mejia attacked Tampico and three companies who were from New Orleans. One company, which had poor leadership, immediately broke ranks, and half of them, along with some wounded, were captured by Santa Ana forces the next day. Twenty-eight of the men were tried as pirates, convicted, and on on December 14, 1835, shot. Almost a month passed before they were executed, and this had given Santa Ana more than enough time to see the reaction from the United States over Americans being executed. When there was no immediate reaction from New Orleans, Santa Ana felt he was within his rights to do so. This led him to believe that he had found an effective deterrent to any American support or aid for Texas. Santa Ana then asked the Mexican Congress for an official decree which directed that all foreigners taken in arms against the government should be treated as pirates and shot. He received that decree in December of 1835. His main army took no prisoners, and General Jose de Arria, commander of Santa Ana's right wing, was responsible for carrying out those types of orders. Urias' first prisoners were survivors of Francis W. Johnson's party, captured in San Patricio on February 27, 1836. According to a report from Reuben M. Potter, Uria was not bloodthirsty, and when not overruled by orders of a superior or stirred by irritation, was disposed to treat prisoners with lenity. The general reported to Santa Ana that he held the San Patricio fires, uh, fighters as prisoners. Santa Ana ordered him to carry out the decree of December 30th. Uria complied, 
issuing the order to shoot both the prisoners and prisoners from the Battle of Agua Dulce Creek. Urrea, though, had no stomach for such actions and took advantage of the protest of Father Thomas J. Malloy, who was the priest of the Irish colonists, to send the prisoners to Matamoros. He asked Santa Ana to forgive him and essentially washed his hands of the prisoners' fate. However, Urrea was faced with the same dilemma in Refugio on March 15, 1836. This time, 33 Americans had been captured in the fighting at Nuestra Señora del Refugio Mission, while most of them coming from, with most of them coming from Captain Amon B. King's company. When King and his men burned local ranchos and shot eight Mexicans who were sitting around a campfire, well, this action inflamed their enemies who wanted revenge. Urrea satisfied both his conscience and those around by executing King and 14 of his men while setting at liberty all who were colonists or Mexicans. He faced a more complicated situation on March 20th after James W. Fannin's surrender at the Battle of Colito. Fannin's men had agreed in writing several terms of surrender. Primarily, it was agreed that Fannin and his men, including his officers and the wounded, would be treated as prisoners of war. It was also agreed that they would be eventually paroled and returned to the United States. Needless to say, after Santa Ana's orders, Urrea could not, of course, agree to these terms. But he also knew that if he refused them, it would mean another bloody battle. The Texans, the Mexicans and Texans couldn't come to a final agreement, and Urrea negotiated directly with Fannin and proposed that Texans should give up their arms and become prisoners of war at the disposal of the supreme Mexican government. Urrea assured Fannin that there was no known instance when a prisoner of war who had trusted the Mexican government had been executed. Fannin had no logical choice but to accept the terms, but he failed to inform his men of the conditional nature of the terms. Major Juan José Holsinger, one of the Mexican commissioners, gave the Texans a false sense of security by greeting them with, Well, gentlemen, in 80 days, home and liberty. After Fannin's men had turned in their arms, about 240 uninjured or slightly wounded men were marched to Goliad and imprisoned in the chapel of Nuestra Señora de Loreto Presidio at La Bahia. The other wounded Texans, about 50 or so, including doctors and orderlies and Colonel Fannin, were moved to Goliad over the next two days. On March 22nd, William Ward, who had been defeated in the Battle of Efurio, surrendered near Demis Landing, believing that he had the same terms as Fannin, and he and about 80 of his men of the Georgia Battalion were sent to Goliad. Well, Urrea kept his promise and wrote to Santa Ana from Guadalupe, Victoria, informing him that Fannin and his men were prisoners of war at the disposal of the Supreme Mexican government, and he recommended clemency. However, he left out of his letter the terms that Fannin and his men had drafted for their surrender. Santa Ana's reply to Urrea's clemency letter on March 23rd was to order the immediate execution of these perfidious foreigners, and he repeated the order in a letter the following day. On March 23rd, same day, Santa Ana, who doubted if Urrea would carry out the order, sent a direct command to 
the officer commanding the post of Goliath to execute the prisoners in his hands. Uria had left Colonel Jose Nicolas de la Portilla in charge at Goliath, and he was the one to receive the letter. Two hours after he received Santa Ana's directive, Portilla received an order from Uria to treat the prisoners with consideration and especially their leader Fannin, and to employ them in rebuilding the town. While this seems a very humanitarian thing to do, Uria was well aware that Portilla would not be able to comply because on March 25th, after he received Santa Ana's letter, Uria had ordered reinforcements that would have resulted in too large of a force or a community for the prisoners to be employed on public works. Even though Portilla was somewhat conflicted by his orders, he realized that he was duty-bound to obey Santa Ana. He then ordered that the prisoners be shot at dawn. At sunrise on Palm Sunday, March 27, 1836, the unwounded Texans were formed into three groups under heavy guard, commanded by Captain Pedro Balderas, Captain Antonio Ramirez, and First Adjutant Augustine Alcerica, a colonel in the Trevias Battalion in April of 1836. The largest group, including what remained of Ward's Georgia Battalion and Captain Burr H. Duval's company, was marched towards the upper ford of the San Antonio River on the Bear Road. The San Antonio Grays, Mobile Grays, and others were marched along the Victoria Road in the direction of the lower ford. Captain John Shackelford's Red Rovers and Ira J. Westover's Regulars were marched southwesterly along the San Patricio Road. The guard, which was to serve also as a firing squad, including the battalions of Tres Villas and Yucatan, dismounted, dismounted cavalry and pickets from the Catula, Tampico, and Durango regiments. The prisoners were not suspicious because they had been told the purpose of the marches would be so they could gather wood, drive cattle, march to Matamoras, or even move to the, fort of, to the port of Copana for passage to New Orleans. Only the day before, Fannin himself, with his adjutant general, Joseph M. Chadwick, had returned from Copana, where, accompanied by Holsinger and other Mexican officials, he had tried to charter a vessel. Urea had no intention of allowing Fannin to actually charter a ship. This was an effort by him to seize that ship. Since the vessel had departed, he was unable to do so. Fannin, though, still believed that Urea would keep his word and was cheerful and told his men the Mexicans were making arrangements for their departure. But during the march, at selected spots on each of the three roads, just about a half to three-quarters of a mile from the Presidio, the three groups halted. Guards who had been on the right of the column moved and formed with the guard on the left. At a signal, the guards fired upon the prisoners. They were too close to miss. Nearly all the prisoners were killed at the first volley. Those not killed and who tried to escape were chased and slaughtered by gunfire, bayonet, or lance. Fannin and some 40 of the wounded Texans who were unable to march were put to death inside the Presidio under the direction of Captain Carolino Huerto of the Trecevillas Battalion. Twenty-four of the two groups on the river roads managed to escape. Only four men of the group on the San Patricio Road are known to have escaped. Records show that 342 were executed at Goliad on March 27th. Only 28 escaped the firing squads and 20 more were spared as physicians, orderlies, interpreters, or mechanics, largely because 
of the entreaties of a high-bred beauty whom the Texans called the Angel of Goliad and the intervention of Colonel Francisco Garay. Many of those who eventually escaped were first recaptured and later managed a second escape. Two physicians, Joseph H. Bernard and John Shackelford, were taken to San Antonio to treat Mexican wounded from the Battle of the Alamo. They later escaped. The total number of prisoners is open to discussion, and it varies from the Mexican estimate of 445 to the Texans' estimate of 407. Some of the prisoners who had been captured at Refurio were not executed because they were serving the Mexican army as blacksmiths, wheelwrights, or other artisans. The exact fate of others captured at Refurio is not known. They may have been added to the prisoner at Goliad and killed with Fannin on March 27th. The impact of the Goliad massacre cannot be understated. Until this moment, Santa Ana's reputation had been one of a cunning and crafty man rather than a cruel man. At the time of the massacre, Texas didn't have an army, and the newly created ad interim government seemed incapable of forming one. For the Texans to succeed, they needed both material and sympathy of the United States. If Santa Ana had simply dumped Fannin and Miller's men on the wharves of New Orleans, penniless, homesick, humiliated, and distressed, and each was able to talk about how poorly the Texas leaders were working, Texas prestige in the United States would have begun to disappear along with sources of help. But Portilla's action at Goliad and the fall of the Alamo both gave Santa Ana and the Mexican people a reputation for cruelty and aroused the fury of the people of Texas, the United States, and even Spain's normal enemies, Great Britain and France. Santa Ana inadvertently helped to ensure the success of the Texas Revolution. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Subscribe to the podcast. Come on now. I try to keep posting new episodes. Sometimes, though, life does get in the way and there's a gap between them. But hey, you know, remember, if you want more information on Texas history, visit Texas State Historical Association. I also have two audio books on the hidden history of Texas, one which deals with the 1500s to about 1820 and the other from 1820 to 1830. Oh, and guess what? I'm getting ready, and I will be releasing within the next few days book number three, which will cover the 1830s to 1836, everything I've talked about in these past, oh, 14 episodes. And you can find the books pretty much wherever you download or listen to audiobooks. Just search for The Hidden History of Texas or Hank Wilson. And links to all the stores are on my publisher's website, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash ashbynavis.com. That is going to do it. I'll see you next time. Peace, y'all.